Good morning. Well, uh, let me say a greetings to you again. I think I preached here in October. It hasn't been that long ago. Uh, just let me say thank you to you for making it possible for me to not have to prepare another new sermon this week and enjoy the conference and to making it possible to your own pastor to do the same. So uh, I was there when this congregation formed. I was sitting in the congregation that day. And what a joy it is to see you and be able to deliver the word to you today. And I'm so thankful for you. We regularly pray for you at Restoration Church. And I am regularly calling people to come to you. Uh, so it's not uncommon to have people come from Arlington up to us. So I'm trying to push them back down. So keep going so we can keep doing that. Grateful for you. Let me pray for us. And we'll take a look at God's word. Father in heaven, we thank you for the love of Christ. We thank you that in him is life. And the life is the light of man. Oh God, that we would rest and know that life today ourselves. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, my marriage is going to end horribly. I was married to my wife, Andy, on January the 24th, 2003 in Oxford, Georgia. It was the coldest night of the year, and I was marrying the prettiest girl in the world. The ceremony began. There she came down the aisle in all of her glory. And as she came up to the front, we met and we covenanted together before God and those 150 or so witnesses. After doing so, we sealed that covenant with a kiss, a sign of the uh, oneness that now marked our impending marriage. This past January, we celebrated some 20 years of marital bliss. And I know a lot of people say that, but for me, it's true. Marriage has had its ups and downs. It's a lot of hard work. However, but in 20 years, it's been some of the greatest joys of my life to be married to my wife. <clears throat> However, it's going to end horribly because one of us is going to die. And whoever it is that's still alive will have to learn how to navigate life apart from that covenant that we learn so much to live inside. And it will be difficult, terribly difficult. And I think this picture is a reality, is a kind of metaphor, actually, for our world. We live in a lot of good here in this world. There's a lot of good in the world, but it's also so full of sadness. And like my marriage, it will end horribly for us all because all of us will die, save the return of Christ beforehand. And this morning's sermon means to explain these two realities. It means to explain why death and darkness mark so much of our world and even our lives in particular. And it means to explain how death and darkness can be overcome with life eternal. And in this, in doing so, I'll explain the unique worldview that Christians offer to the world. And by the end, we should be able to all explain how Christians answer the most difficult and the most beautiful parts. Grace restores nature. The big idea this morning is grace restores nature. Grace restores nature. We'll, we'll consider this from Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. You can find that on page 942 of the Pew Bible there in front of you. One pastor calls this paragraph the most difficult paragraph in the entire book of Romans, which is in itself a difficult book. And so therefore, I do not intend to answer every question that this paragraph introduces. However, I do intend to answer the big idea. So two points this morning. Death reigns in Adam. Life reigns in Christ. 
Death reigns in Adam, life reigns in Christ. The first point explains why things are the way they are. The second point explains how we might return to the way things were supposed to be and one day will be. Take a look at Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the, in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted, but, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. First point again, death reigns in Adam. Death reigns in Adam. Let me just set this passage up. Paul here is writing to the Christians that are in Rome. We are picking up in chapter 5, as I just read. So basically, we're dropping some 30 minutes into a lecture. Uh, late, We're dropping 30 minutes late into a lecture already. All right, He's done a lot before we've kind of dropped in. He started at the beginning of this book in Romans chapter 1 uh, with creation. And then he slowly moves into uh, salvation. And the biggest point that he just finished making there in chapter 4 is that justification, that is being declared righteous in Christ, that comes by faith. You can see that by looking at the end of chapter 4. Look over there in verse 24. But for, our, but for ours also it will be counted to us who believe in him and who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So if Jesus, what we see here is who, the one that was raised from the dead is the one that will be able to count us righteous in Christ. So if Jesus doesn't raise from the dead, friends, then he's no different than anyone else. No different than Muhammad, no different than Buddha or anyone else. But because he raised from the dead, that means his death on the cross was indeed sufficient for sin. Which explains the very next verse. Take a look at that. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, Since we have been justified, how? By faith. We, I love this, have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. So justification, that is righteousness before God, comes by faith through our Lord Jesus. And then it slides down to verse 10. Uh, Comes in, it, it explains further when this justification happened to the one who has faith. 
Look at that. It happened, verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now, guys, that sets the stage for verses 12 to 21. Verses 12 to 21 explains how precisely all of this works together. Verses 12 to 21 gets more specific on how justification by He's going to compare two very real historical people. Uh, he's going to compare Adam and Jesus Christ. He will explain that through the sin of Adam, death came into the world. And he will explain that justification comes by union with Christ. Death through Adam, that's what he's going to do. Life through Christ. And so Adam, in other words, walks into the grave. Christ walks out. Somebody asked you at lunch what was the sermon about. There you go. Adam walks into the grave, Jesus walks out. And what Paul is saying in this passage is everyone, everybody in this room, everybody outside of this room, everyone is either in union with Adam or you're in union with Christ. And whichever union you are tethered to, that's the union that will not only explain uh, the world around us, but more specifically, it'll explain your life. Namely, that in Adam all die, but in Christ all are made alive. So let's take now, let's think a little more carefully about this union with Adam. Look at verse 12 again. It says again, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. All right, stop there for a minute. In this one verse, Paul explains what sin. So are. Christians believe that the biggest problem with the world is sin. So that's what we believe. Sin is defined most basically as rebellion, rebellion against God. And so in Romans 1, Paul describes sin as worshiping the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Sin is rebellion against God in favor of the created. That's what we understand to be the problem with the world most fundamentally. And here in this one passage, Paul says that that sin, that sin came into the world through one man. And the one man that he's referring to is Adam, the first man. We read about him earlier in the service in Genesis 3. That's clear that he's talking about Adam because we see it there in verse 14. More on him, more on Adam in a second. But sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So we ask, how did death enter the world? Well, through the one man's sin, one man's rebellion against God. That then leads to the third step. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So sin came in, how? Through one man, through Adam. So since sin came in, death therefore then came. And since death came in, it spread to all mankind. And how is it we know that that's true? Well, because we all sin. And so at the base of it, what is wrong with the world is sin and rebellion against God. In other words, you get that right. You get sin right. You fix that. You then fix death. You fix death, you then put life back into the world. That's the argument that Paul's going to make in a minute. But let's just think for a moment about this historical reality of sin and death entering into the world through one man. Again, we've already heard about it, but let's consider it a little bit more. In Genesis chapter 2, the first human being God made by which we are all descendant from is Adam. And I realize that for some of us in this room, you may be thinking that all of us descending from one man seems utter nonsense. I get that some of you here think that. And I'm not going to take the time to list out why all Christians believe that Adam descended from one real historical man. I'll just give you one for now. 
Right? Jesus Christ was most certainly a real historical person that did much good in the world, and Jesus Christ believed that we were all descended from that one man, Adam, as evidenced by his trust and belief in the Old Testament, which is there in Genesis. Much more could be said about that. Subdue the creation in a manner that image created in the image of God, and he was put into the Garden of Eden to rule over. Subdue the creation in a manner that image God. Eve was his helper, and they were instructed to enjoy all the trees of the garden except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They disobeyed that command from God by submitting, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but submitting to creation by their submitting to the serpents. Temptation. They eat of that fruit, and therefore they sin then entered through in the world through the one man. Adam's choosing to rebel against God by serving creation and listening to the sermon that led to him eating the tree, of course, was not supposed to, he was not supposed to eat of that tree. And that sin was therefore that as he did it, it was like one drop of poison that entered into a clean glass of water. It poisoned the whole thing, poisoned the whole world. It brought death to what was otherwise life in the world. And the reason why sin brings death is because God is life. God has no beginning and no end. He is, as he says, Yahweh, I am. And so to rebel against him is to separate oneself from the God of life. In other words, if the power core, it's designed and disconnects from the socket, death comes to whatever it's powering. That's what happened. Sin entered the world, there, death as a result because there was separation from God. Now theologians call Adam humanity's federal head. They use the language of federal head because it helps illustrate what happens in Adam. See, just as an ambassador can single-handedly represent an entire nation, as an ambassador can represent an entire federal country, so Adam represents all of humanity. He was our ambassador, as it were. His rebellion brought destruction to us all. Therefore, the world we came into was full of sin and death. The world, friends, is not neutral, as some of our friends might want to convince us of. We don't come into a neutral world with neutral hearts. Every human being comes into the world with an operating system that is already set to sin and death. Set, when you come into the world, set to rebellion and death. That precious baby girl or baby boy is not neutral. I probably don't have to convince that of the parents in the room. Children come into the world not basically good, but basically bad. And that's because of Adam's representation of us in the garden. Children are not as bad as they could be, to be certain. That's God's common grace. But the reason why that's the case, why they come into the world basically bad, is because sin brought death, and therefore we all die. And we all naturally sin ourselves. So as a result then, to confirm what Paul is saying here, death reigns. And if you don't believe me when I say that we come into the world basically bad, not basically good, uh, if you don't believe me that I, we come into the world with this basic disposition set towards rebellion, I'd ask you one question. Did anyone ever have to teach you to lie, cheat, or steal? In other words, did anyone ever have to teach you to be selfish? Did anyone have to say, all right, Johnny, let me tell you how to go in there and think of yourself more important than them and go take that toy and beat him over the head? No, nobody had to teach you that. Right? Likewise, have they had to teach you or teach me, have they had to teach us how to be kind, how to be humble? Have they had to teach you how do we, aren't we still learning how to think of others as better than ourselves? 
And so universal sin, friends, that illustrates that universal sin leads to universal death. We live with these basic operating systems with rebellion. And so we all sin and we all die because Adam sinned and in every span of history. Sin through one man which brought death and death through sin because all sin. And friends, this death, you need to know, this death is pervasive. It's pervasive. It's total. It includes three things. This death includes three things. It includes spiritual death, which is separation from God. All right, that's that lack of peace with our maker, that lack of a righteous nature. It includes physical death, which, of course, is separation from the body. And, of course, it also includes eternal death, eternal separation from God, body and spirit. This is what's wrong with the world. This is why things are the way that they are. And I realize that much of our city would have a very different interpretation of these events. I understand that our city would have a very different interpretation of why things are as bad as they are. There would be some in our city that would say that sin through Adam, that's not what's basically wrong with the world. But instead, some would say that education's the problem. Too much ignorance in the world. The more people were more informed about math and geography and literature and philosophy, then life would come, they would say. Justification for this group is found in getting people more informed. Justification by education is what they would say. It's not Adam, it's not sin, it's education. But then there would be another group that would say, you know, it's not Adam, it's a lack of science and technology. That's the problem. We don't understand nature good enough, they would say. Once again, it's an, it's an ignorance problem with a slightly different emphasis. It's an ignorance related to the natural world. That's the problem. And so justification for this group is not understanding the need to overcome sin and death. No, justification for this group would be in research and technology. We just need to get the right answers and employ the right technology. We can overcome it all and bring more life. But still others would say, no, it's not Adam's, not sin. It's economics. That's the problem. If more people made more money, then we could purchase more of what we need, stay out of poverty, which would alleviate crime. A lack of finances, they would say, is the problem. Justification is found, therefore, in money by this group, not sin. And then there are those that would say that the problem with the world is bad government. The problem here is in leadership and systems. If we had a better government, then the bad would go away and life would come. Justification for this group is found in politics. You can see this in the frenzy that's stirred up every four years. If we could just get the right people in office and get all the wrong ones out, then life would come. But then there are those that say, uh, yes, we have a problem with God. There would be some groups that say, yes, sin is the problem. However, they're slightly different than what Paul would say. They would say the solution, they would say justification to bring about life, it's found in religion. Namely, religious activities. Take the Lord's Supper, get baptized, go to church, read the Bible, confess sins, do enough of these things, and then justification comes, life will come. And so they accurately understand that mankind is flawed, is sinful, but they differ with Paul in that they see the solution, they see the justification is ultimately on us. Like these others, they trust ultimately in themselves to overcome separation from God. Jesus is a good example. Maybe he's sort of like a Red Bull power drink to kind of get us going. Doing enough religious activities to reconcile them to God. But finally, there are those in our context that would tell us that the problem is really authority in general. That's the problem. 
paternalism, colonialism, religion, whatever, whoever it is that's trying to impose ideologies upon us, they are the ones that are restricting us, and we don't need authority. We need to be individually free. And by free, they mean free from external authorities making universal demands upon us. We need to be our authentic, autonomous selves. External authorities, they are the ones that are the problems with the world. It's not sin. It's not Adam. Justification then for those in this camp would be seen in diminishing all external authorities that make demands upon us and then let us be whoever it is we feel like we need to be. And so, friends, whether it's education, whether it's science and technology, economics, government, external authorities, whatever the case may be, all of these see as a final authority, all of these as a final authority would reject the notion that the Bible straightforwardly teaches that sin through Adam and death to all is the problem. All of them would ultimately reject that. And in their place, they would suggest alternate problems and solutions. And let it be clear, as I know is true of my church, I remember when I preached this a couple weeks ago. We love so much of these things and give ourselves to these things. As Christians, save that notion of rejecting authority, we believe all these other lines of work are important, right? In our church, we have educators, we have scientists, we have medical. We think it's good to be involved in these things. Medical advocates and the like, we love these things. These are good things. We think it's good to be involved in these things. The difference is we don't hope in these things as the answer to the problems in our world. The gospel of Jesus Christ uniquely defines the problem with our world in ways, friends, that others do not. So if you're in one of those camps, I, I would interact with you a bit to sort of show you just at least three ways in which those ideologies as a way as, the, as explaining the problems with the world, three ways I would interact with that. All of these explanations, first, they either deal, they deal only with a sliver of the human condition. Education deals only with the mind. Economics only deals with finance. Science and technology only deal with material matter. It doesn't touch on critical things like love, joy, and contentment. Secondly, none of these things deal with God. It's either explicit or assumed atheism. Right? Their, their estimations of the problems and their solutions aren't seriously considering the reality of God behind these things, which leads to the third problem with these explanations of the brokenness of our world, None of them deal with death. This is the most fatal flaw because it shows that these explanations don't go nearly enough. They don't go far enough because they don't deal with God and they don't deal with the greatest enemy of all. They don't deal with death. No matter how much education you have, no matter how much technology you have, no matter how good your government is or how void of authorities you are, you and I are still going to die. Last time I checked, the death rate was still 100%. And it's because of these false faiths in these broken pots that I believe explain so much of the ongoing problems in our society. We've tried to shove God off into a corner and we increasingly are trusting ourselves to fix what is wrong with us. Never realizing that no matter how hard we try, we are never going to overcome the greatest enemy of sin and death on our own. In fact, one study has shown that clinical depression is rising in a, quote, Eerie synchronization with rising prosperity. One author, one author asked in response to this, why is it no matter how much we have, no matter how good we have it, we still struggle to be satisfied? Well, maybe the answer is giving more thought to the problem by going deeper. Our relationship to God, the enemy of death, 
In other words, maybe Paul is right. And sin against God and death as a consequence, that's our problem. Maybe death has spread to all because one sin which led to all sinning. And if they are, then the solution to this problem is going to have to come from not with that leads us to the second half of Paul's comparison. Death reigns in Adam. That's what we're... Life reigns in Christ. Life reigns in Christ. Life reigns in Christ. Take a look at the end of verse 12 there. And most of your Bibles, you're going to see a dash. If you have a CSB, there won't be a dash. But the rest of them, you'll see a dash at the end of verse 12. And that indicates a pause in Paul's line of thinking after this. In fact, in verses 13 to the beginning of verse 18, there's a parenthetical statement that gives us even more detail about these comparisons between Adam and Jesus. But if we were to slide down to verse 18, you can see how Paul closes the loop that he began there in verse 12. If, we were to, if I were to read 12 and 18 together, it would sound like this. Therefore, just, this is verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, verse 18, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So one sinful act by, by Adam, our federal representative, threw us into a world of sin and death such that we now sin and therefore die. But, this is the good news, one righteous act by Jesus Christ leads to justification and life for all men that believe. In verse 14, you can see that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Adam was a pattern, a shadow, a prefiguring of Jesus in the sense that one man making one act brought about universal effects, right? So in Christ, the second and final Adam, his one righteous act, Jesus' one righteous act leads to universal justification and life for all that you're united to him by faith. In Adam, death reigns, but in Christ, life reigns. Paul will go on to make this very point at the conclusion of his argument there in verse 21. Take a look at that. As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, as I've been saying, grace restores nature. But what was Jesus' one act of righteousness that leads to justification and life for all men? What was? What was that one act? We know Adam's one act was eating that fruit. What was Jesus, well, that's the gospel, the good news. For Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, lives a sinless life, obeyed every law, and therefore is able to offer his life as a sinful, uh, to, in order to pay for the sins of those that trust him. He never sinned. He was fully God, fully man. He was completely righteous. Therefore, he was able to make atonement for sinners. He receives the punishment that we all deserve. And therefore, as he receives that, he's able to count his perfect righteousness to the one that believes. This is amazing news. He is buried and raises on the third day to show, to reveal that he was the righteous sacrifice for all to believe. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, speaking of Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we, we that believe, might become the righteousness of God. 
And friends, isn't it appropriate that this one act of justification by Christ hanging on the cross, isn't it appropriate that that one act of justification for all who believe was accomplished at a tree? Adam infected us all with sin and death at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And for all who believe on Christ, Jesus grants justification and life at the tree of Golgotha. And to be clear, friends, we ought to be very clear about this. Grace is not just a thing. Grace is a person. It's Jesus. It's Jesus the Christ. And the life that Christ offers, as Paul says, is much more than the death Adam offers. It comes by the grace of God. In Christ, we have spiritual life now. The deadness of my spiritual life is awakened to see and to savor the truth. By grace, through faith in Christ and his gospel, I now have invigorated spiritual hungers for Christ and his righteousness. My moral deadness is able to overcome, to be overcome because God has planted his spirit from within me. Look down at chapter 6. Paul goes on to say in Romans 6, right after this, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Therefore, Paul can go on to say in verse 12, let, I have had so much joy in meditating on those three letters. Let, can you believe that? In Christ, we can let. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. I don't know what that is that you're struggling with, Christian brother or sister, but you can let it not. God has declared those united to Christ by faith. He's declared them righteous. He's declared them justified. He has given us the life of the spirit within. Therefore, now spiritual life reigns, not spiritual death. And not only that, by grace through faith in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, I also have, the Christian also has eternal life, body and spirit. Because, as we read earlier in Romans 4.25, that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised, bodily raised, for our justification. And so Jesus doesn't only grant us spiritual life, he grants us physical life that is in keeping with his eternal life. Adam's sin introduced death, therefore we sin and die, but for all who repent and believe on Christ, our biggest problems are dealt with. We have spiritual life in Christ. And we have eternal physical life in Christ. Whereupon his return, we will worship our resurrected Savior and resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth forever. And therefore, friend, you can see why someone might call this paragraph the most important paragraph in the Bible. Or one of the most important paragraphs in the Bible. But certainly one of the most important paragraphs in this book of Romans that is in the most important book, which is the Bible. Because if you understand Adam and you understand Jesus Christ, you are, you are able to understand the most important things about our world. These two people explain why the world is the way it is in its brokenness, and it explains how it's made right, down at the root, at the core. The question then remains, which union are you in? You are either in union with Adam, and death reigns in you, or you are in union with Christ and life reigns with you. These are the two options for everyone on planet Earth. And friend, if you reject this, you only create more problems with more questions and fewer unsatisfactory answers that don't go far enough. 
And so who are you in, friend? Who are you in? Who are you united to? Where's your faith? Where's your trust, that is? Is it in Adam or is it in Christ? Does death reign or does life reign? You'll know by who or what you place your full and final trust in. If you are united to Adam, death will reign spiritually and eternally. If you'll not have an appetite for the righteous, but instead you'll go on hungering for things of the earth because that's where your trust is. And eventually you'll die. And the death that now reigns in you will reign eternally apart from God in hell. But if you're united to Christ by faith, if you are repenting and believing upon Christ alone for salvation, trusting and treasuring him, then life will reign spiritually and eternally. You'll have spiritual appetites that terminate in the resurrected Lord who works his righteousness out in you. Manifesting a life that, though imperfectly, yet progressively, exudes love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. You'll long to see and savor the one that changed your life. And you'll long to commend him to others. The grace of Christ will be progressively restoring your nature to how it should have been in the beginning. And how one day, beloved, it will be. Friends, I told you at the beginning that my marriage was going to end horribly. That's not entirely true. Because God has so graced me with faith in Christ and he's done the same with my wife. Yes, on earth it will end horribly. But when I or my wife dies, friend, we will weep only for ourselves. Because the dead in Christ immediately are led to the presence of Christ. We are led to him who is our life. We are led to the one of whom we trusted. And there eventually she and I will meet again. United no longer by our marriage, but more fundamentally our marriage to Christ. And in that marriage there will be something even more deeper, more enduringly beautiful. Body and spirit will be there in our union with Christ. And that union will never spoil or fade. We will live together with him again. No more off days, no more bad weeks, no more fears of death or hardship, but only life together in a love that transcends space or time, a love that never fails, but only eternally enlivens because we will forever increase in our knowledge and love of God together, along with each other. She and I will be together along with all the beloved in Christ from every tribe, tongue, and nation, Nation, together as one. The very same thing that the United Nations wants but can never achieve because it can't, wasn't designed to. Adam cannot restore nature. He's the one that destroyed it. You and I cannot bring in full and final restoration. We're the problem. God has to invade the earth. And that's exactly what he did in the person of the work of Christ. And he now reigns, as he says. All authority is given to me in heaven and earth. He reigns through his people. Christ, the second and final and greater Adam, can and does every day bring about that restoration. Grace restores nature, not man. And grace is found in Christ. And so, beloved, the application is simple. We come and behold the wondrous mystery. In the dawning of the king, 
He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh, and ransomed us. Christian brother or sister, soon enough, we will sing fully and finally, O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? Beloved, that day is coming. But until then, hope in Christ and extend that life in calling people to Jesus every day and enjoy it yourselves and as a church. And life is reigning and will reign all the more. But until then, may we give praise to him and trust in him. Let's pray together.